you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our study, and I will begin reading in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we are taking an extended look at this passage. We've spent several weeks on it. We've answered several questions that I think are fair to ask of the author when it comes to this text, because I think this text is very important. The role it plays in the entire exhortation or sermon that is the book of Hebrews and just the gravity of the things it says and how it relates to our everyday lives. I really do think it's that important and it is worthy for us to spend our time probably because of the nature of our times like the culture that we live in, the the marinade that we exist in as people, it's important for us to answer the hard questions that I think if you're honestly reading the text that you are forced to ask. And this week, we're going to try to do something um, that might come with some challenges, Um, but we're asking the author of the question, if you, author of Hebrews, are telling us, you're exhorting us to exhort one another in the church, and you're not being super specific about how exactly we're to exhort one another, at least in this spot. So we are, as readers of the text, trying to submit to the text, asking good questions of the author, and demanding that he supply the answer from either the rest of his discourse, what he's already said up to this point, what he's going to say, or scripture verses that he would point to outside of the text. So the question we have today is kind of threefold, and that's why there's a little bit of difficulty here. How can parents, or how ought parents to exhort their children? Similarly, how can children exhort their parents? And then third, how can children or siblings exhort one another, right? And I hope that topic or that question that we would ask the author of Hebrews generates at least some excitement for you because of all the implications that hopefully are unfolding in your mind as you think about how the family is set up to reflect God's glory. And how it's usually said when we come to the topic of parents and children Uh, parents are told you're you're supposed to provide and protect and care for your kids. What our culture does, even Christian culture, is that we run those ideas off the edge, if you will. You can make your children an idol. Their success or failure influences you so much that either you respond in pride or frustration, they're your idols. And that doesn't help them endure. And that pressure, that weight that can be put on your children for them to perform or succeed in the ways that you hope they'll succeed and maybe in the ways that are even good for them to succeed, that weight of them being your God is a weight that they can't endure. And it can crush their spirit. 
kids in the room, and I know kid is a, is a word for a baby goat, so I'm not calling you a baby goat. I just say kids because that's cultural for us, children, young people, whatever you want me to say, okay? Kids, right? I'm not trying to insult you by that. How it's usually said to you guys is you're supposed to obey and respect and help your parents and honor them. End of story. Why? Because God said so. Right? I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. Any of y'all ever heard that? Yeah. That may be a generational thing. And some of you, um, maybe you've run afoul of your parents so bad that they've even told you the command of the Old Testament that rebellious kids could be stoned by their parents in their town. Right? Has, that, have you, has it ever gotten that bad for you? Right? Hey, you better be glad we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant, son or daughter, because back then they could just stone their kids. Yeah. So what this can do in the heart of a child or a kid or someone living at home under their parents' care is it can create a heart of bitterness. Because the explanation is often not given of why we as children are supposed to submit to our parents and obey them and honor them. If it's just because God said so, or because I said so, or because I brought you into the world, or I'm your legal guardian, it can create bitterness, and it can drive us to feel what the prodigal son felt towards his dad. I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Right? And those of you who have brothers and sisters, the Bible does have a lot to say to you. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters and your relationships with your brothers or sisters can be the cause of a lot of rivalry. And we have many biblical stories to kind of highlight that. Just think of Isaac and Ishmael. Think of Jacob and Esau. Think of Joseph and his brothers. And even in that story, it gives us an idea of what brothers and sisters are supposed to be like because they start with rivalry and bitterness and the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. But in the end of it, Joseph, as a type of Christ, reconciles with his brothers. So that story actually shows us the bad side and the good side. So let's ask the question in a more full way. Author of Hebrews, this is what the question I want you to be asking to him as you're reading this text. If you have children, whether they're living at home or not, if you're a parent of any kind, or if you're a child, young person, if you have parents, that's all of us for the most part, and if they're still living, um, but most of these commands still apply to you, even if they're not. Or if you have a brother or sister, and even if you don't have a biological brother or sister, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this applies to everyone, right? I'm trying to get us all on board with this. So here's the question. Author of Hebrews, you've told us that we're supposed to exhort one another. And you've told us that we should do this to help each other endure. And that if we don't, that we ourselves and others around us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We asked him last, uh, two weeks ago how husbands can exhort their wives and how wives can exhort their husbands. And I hope those were a blessing to you. We took clues from the author about Jesus pointing us to the creation narrative. So having told us that and answered that question, is there any special or particular way that parents can exhort their children and also how children can exhort their parents and how siblings can exhort one another. And there's a heart issue that needs to be addressed before we let the author answer his question, uh, our question, rather. 
And that's this. Are you willing to address heart issues? What's the deep motivation of your heart towards your parents, your kids, or your siblings? All of us in this room. If you're not willing to address deep heart motivations, you might not be ready to hear his answer. Parents, if what you find in your heart towards your children is not Christ-like love, but rather human affection that manifests in pride when they do perform to your standards or frustration when they don't perform to your standards, then you may have to begin addressing that first before you're ready to hear the author's instruction. People told Beth and myself when uh, we were expecting Zoe, when Beth was pregnant with Zoe, oh, just wait until she's born. You'll realize you don't know what love is. Anyone ever told you that? I reject that for many important theological reasons. But what they're getting at is that something happens in the heart of the parents when your child is born that so captures you that your whole life is now determined by that person. Right? And you love them so much and you care for them and your affection is set, set on them and it transforms your life. But that can be self-centered. Because you want your kids to do well. You want them to represent you well. You want them to thrive and, and to have a good life. And so it can be completely parochial just because they're your biological child that you've set this affection on them. It has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with the gospel because you don't feel that type of love and care for anyone else. It's just because they're your child. Kids, young people, children, if your heart towards your parents is not Christ-like love, but rather a suspicion or disrespect and trying to get what you can get out of them for your benefit, maybe mocking them behind their back or not listening to them, maybe you have no interest in honoring them at the deepest level, or maybe you're one of the good kids, and what you get out of honoring your parents is an ability to establish yourself above all the other kids and be the moral policeman of the family, right? Maybe there's no deep-seated desire to honor them as you're honoring the Lord, but just to be one of the good kids and look down on all the bad kids. If that's in your heart, that has to be addressed. You need to hand that over, even in this moment, as I'm going through these warnings before we hear the author's answer just hand that over to the lord just confess it in your own hearts parents and, and children those living at home just hand that over to him confess it and ask for help to repent if your heart towards your siblings or your friends who are basically like siblings is not one of christ-like love but of self-interest meaning you only like to spend time with them because they can offer something to you or have you have similar interests right that's the same way that I love pizza, right? You have your friends, you love your friends, but it's the same way I like pizza because it makes me feel good. I enjoy eating it. I enjoy spending time with you. We like some of the same things, so we'll hang out. And then when that changes, you distance yourself from those friends. If it's not Christ-like love, but merely because of self-interest that you love them, you've got to hand that over to the Lord and confess it and ask for his help to get rid of those heart motivations. 
These warnings that I've been saying, these three warnings, have been a long way of saying, essentially, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, or if I'm a really good parent, if I make sure my kid gets into Juilliard or MIT or Harvard, or if I'm a really good son or daughter and set up my parents for retirement and care for them, if I'm one of the good kids, if I'm a really good friend and have a lot of fun hanging out with my friends, but if I have not love, this Christ-like love, I gain nothing. Now, having said these things, I don't know where each of you are and what the motivations of your heart are towards your parents or your children or your siblings. But let's proceed and ask the Spirit to help us as we go. Believe it or not, the author has already given us enough material in chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3 for us to spend all of our time just talking about those verses. I'm going to bring in two others, one we've already brought in when we were talking about prayer, exhorting one another through prayer, and then one that's in chapter 12. I figure it's a few years until we get there, so it's not going to like spill the beans on it anyway, okay? So I'm just going to read the text, okay? And so hang with me. This message is, you know, two-thirds of this message is to children, right? So I'm trying to format what I say to you guys, right? I'm trying to speak directly to your hearts, and I'm expecting a lot from you, and that's okay. But everyone should be heeding these words, because it is Scripture, and it is commands, and all of us to some degree are children, all of us to some degree are parents even, and I'll get to that, and some of us, or all of us, have siblings biologically or in Spirit. So, I'll just read these verses. This is Hebrews 1 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Hebrews 1 5 through 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And just the next verses, Hebrews 11b through 12. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Also, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Speaking of Jesus, 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, it's a longer passage, but it's, it's just too good to ignore for our purposes today. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Consider him, right? Since this theme, we've seen this before, the author is saying, consider Jesus, think on him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And all the children, kids in the room may be frustrated with me for reading that passage. So, But here's what we're going to do. I, I have um, essentially four, four ways for each. Four ways that parents can exhort their children Four ways that children can exhort their parents and four ways that siblings can exhort each other. And what I could do is spend a lot of time going back and expositing each one of those texts and showing you exactly how I got them. We just don't have the time to do that because it's basically three different mini-sermons in a sermon. And I don't want to keep you here until one o'clock. So just let those texts wash over you. These are connected exegetically to these texts and I hope to show that in what I'm saying. First, first I'm going to give you four ways that you as parents can exhort your kids, okay? And, and kids, I do want you to pay attention while I'm saying this to your parents because it will inform and give the shape of how you're supposed to exhort your parents. And let, let me just say this, sorry, parenthetically, I'm not an expert, right? I've been a parent for shorter than most of you, if not all of you. And... Um, I don't think I'm the best son in the world, and I haven't been the best sibling. Right? I think I'm all right, but I haven't been the best. Right? So I don't come to you as an expert. I come to you because I'm a Bible man. Right? These are the words of God, and I'm trying to show you what God says about this. I haven't read a ton of books about these subjects. This is just what I see in these texts. Okay. To parents. Kids, pay attention while I'm talking to your parents. First... Exhort your children by seeing your relationship with them in the context of the Trinity. Yes, 
What we do at weddings, I preach several weddings, every time I'm standing there and the groom is over here and the bride is over here and I'm telling them that what they're about to enter into is not about them or about romance or about love or nice feelings in the heart, but it's about Christ and the church. That's what it's ultimately about. Paul says that I am saying that this mystery, which is so profound, is referring to Jesus in the church. And what we read in Sunday school this morning, that the wedding supper of the Lamb is coming. The end of all things comes to a head in the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is an analogy. We've been given marriage kind of as a signpost about God and how Jesus is redeeming his church. And there's no ceremony or moment in the life of a child where you're exhorted or you're preached to, where you're standing before a preacher and before God and before all people gathered, where you're told as a child or told as a parent that your relationship with your son or daughter or your relationship to your parent is about God. What we have in the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, this eternal relationship that has existed from before all time, the relationship between father and son, mother and daughter, father and daughter, mother and son, is meant to show us who God is. It's meant to be a shadow, a fading shadow at that, but a shadow, a signpost for who God is in and of himself. So parents, as you think about your kids, think about the Trinity. Think about how God loves the Son and that you are essentially living your life and how you treat your children. You're preaching a sermon to them, to yourself, to your spouse, and to all who look on about what it means for God the Father to love God the Son. And that is a significant weight just as it's a significant weight for me to stand before a bride and a groom and say, this is about Jesus and the church, what you're about to enter into. But that's the weight of the glory that you should feel when you look at your son or daughter. It might seem odd to think of it that way. But this should simultaneously make you expect less of your children and also make you expect much more. And we'll get into some of those ways. It's, it's a full-out realignment of your priorities when it comes to your children. That the main goal for how you relate to them and how you raise them is to show yourself, show them, and show the world about Jesus and his relationship with his Father. Second way, parents, you can exhort your children. See your family as an image or a passing shadow of the family of God, which never ends. This is very important. This is a grand and glorious shift in perspective. You've got to be honest, as we said earlier, about your primary motivation to your children. The primary motivation may be, well, I don't have a lot of money saved in my 401k, so I'm going to have a lot of kids so that maybe one of them will be rich, and when I'm retired and can't provide for myself, I'll live with them, right? So I've encouraged some people who are secular to have more kids. Like, well, it's, it could go really bad for you, so you might as well have more kids. One of them might be rich, and you could live with them, right? And it's funny, but we can also want our kids to represent us well, to hold up the family name, be a good citizen, do your part to keep humans alive, right? I'm doing my part. I had two or three kids, right? So that's economic or self-interest, all of those. 
or your view towards your children is it might just be accident or obligation. Well, God commanded us to have kids, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, so I'm having kids. Or my wife wanted kids, right? Whatever it is, it's just obligation or accident. The right way is to see them as a blessing and a privilege for sure, but even more than that, you get to display and act out an image of the family of God. Not only is the family given to us to image or display the relationship between the father and the son, but the family is given as a unit on the earth to show us what God is doing in the church, creating an eternal family. And that family that is eternal, that is going to echo into eternity to millions and trillions of years into the future, will always be there and your family name won't be. The meaning and significance that we put on our family and legacy and all this type of stuff, that's, that's, that's dust. And so the way you raise your kids, the way you feel towards your kids, what you should expect from them is to show people, show yourself, show them that what really matters here is the family of God. Another way to remember... Um, another way to think about this is that your son and your daughter have a soul that will never die. Entrust. Uh, God has entrusted them to your care for a little while. So your actions will leave a lifelong and indelible mark on them. And it's going to echo into eternity. It's not about what the world or even a lot of Christian books say it's about. In raising your kids. It's about giving your child back to God. As Hannah did. When God gave her Samuel. Her whole goal was to prepare him. Raise him and give him back to God. Third, parents. Following from that last one. Realize that the objective of discipline. And how you ought to be raising your children ought to be modeled after how God treats us as his children. It's difficult to overstate how important it is for you to do your part in the right way to exhort your children in the Lord. It's also difficult to overstate how badly this can go when it's done in the wrong way. Many scars that people carry are scars that came from the relationships and the breakdowns of relationships with their parents. What it ought to be is Jesus-centered love and delight and an urgent and fervent care that is filled with faith. The world tells you that you have to get them into the right kindergarten so that they can get into the right preschool, so that they can go to the right elementary school, so that they can go to the right middle school, the right high school, the right college, and, and be really successful. And if you don't, if you fail at any point along the way, then you're a bad parent. They tell me you got you got to teach them how to defend themselves so that they you know you got to take them to karate and you got to be able to uh, be respectful and and care for others and be protectors and you got to make sure that they better help them learn an instrument in a foreign language because you want job security right um, or else you're a bad parent make sure they also have the right kind of exposure to arts and cultures because you want them to be well adjusted and make sure that they are if they're so blessed that you've exposed them to enough professional sports so that if they're so blessed by God that they can become that and make all the money and you didn't do a bad job in exposing them to the right opportunities, right? There are a lot of ways to be a bad parent today. 
And that's not to say that any of those things are wrong or inherently evil. But if your child's grades or hobbies are more important to you, or you communicate at least, you show that they are more important to you by how you and your family spend your time, then let's say if they understand and embrace the doctrine of God's holiness or the atonement. Just to give two examples. If grades and hobbies are more important to you and your family and the way you spend your time and the way you structure your family than them understanding truths about God, then you've lost the plot. Fourth, just realize and be stunned every day that you have the children you have by design. I and the children God has given me, he says. In Acts 17, Paul says that God allotted and positioned each person in the different towns and boundaries and places so that they would feel their way towards God and perhaps find him. You have the children you have not by mistake, but by God's design. Just a note to those of you who have no children, the spiritual fulfillment of this is embodied in what Paul says to the Corinthians. You have countless guides in Christ, but not many fathers. There's an opportunity for many, maybe even young adults who haven't married yet, don't have kids, or those who are older, or those who never had children, to embody all of this, and what I've just said, towards spiritual children. There are many orphans spiritually. They're everywhere. Now, to children, young people, those still living at home especially. First way for you, and, and here's what I'm saying to you. I'm not telling you how to be a good kid necessarily, or here's how you got to obey your mom and dad, right? I'm telling you how you can help your mom and dad endure to the end. I'm telling you how you can exhort your mom and dad. That's a much more significant and meaningful purpose in your life than just be a good kid, Okay? First, just on the heels of what we just said, you have the parents you have by design. Okay? So exhort them to endure in the faith because you have a unique and powerful position. Very powerful position in their lives. You are you. Have you ever thought about that? And maybe this is why I'm a strange individual, but like at 10 years old, I've just started thinking and meditating on the fact that I am myself. I wasn't born in Saudi Arabia or England or China. I was born here to Tom and Kathy Shirey. Right? My soul is here. This is me. And that carries with it a special spiritual significance because that's by God's design that you have the parents you do. And some of you kids may say to me, hey, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Have you met them? Yes. But if you believe in God, kids, children, if you believe in God and you believe that he doesn't make mistakes, that God doesn't mess up, right? If you really believe that, then the time you're born in isn't just for some mysterious reason, but that you might find God and that you might help your parents find the Lord and endure Take advantage of what God has placed in your life. Maybe even in spite of difficulties. Maybe you think, well, if you've just met and knew my parents, you'd know that they, they just don't have their act together. I'm much smarter than them, maybe. Maybe the next Einstein, but kids, 
You've been given to your parents. Your parents have been given to you so that you might help one another endure. And you have, as I said before, so much power and influence. Kids, do you think about your responsibility towards your parents? What you've probably heard, what's probably been preached to you, and what you've probably heard from your parents is obey, 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 obey. And maybe this has caused resentment in you. And I'm not so old as to forget the feelings that I had when it seemed that there was no end in sight in having to do exactly what I was told or else experience consequences. Has anyone ever told you, kids, that you are a very important part of how God plans to work in the lives of your parents? Because you are. Long term, you'll probably have more power to influence them than anyone else. What are you doing, kids, today? To make sure that that influence is the right kind. That it's out of love and not bitterness. Regardless of how good or how bad of a parent you think that they've been to you. The second way that you can exhort your parents, children, kids. Look at the relationship of Jesus who is God the Son and God the Father as your guide to how you're to act. Honoring your father and mother together is the most effective way for you to show the world who God is. And what you believe about God. It also tests the quality of your, na- your claim to know the one true God. If you say you're in Christ, children, if you say you're a believer, then the way you respond and treat your parents and submit to them is preaching a sermon, if you will, to your friends and your parents about what you really believe about God. Because Paul commands us, submit to your parents as to the Lord. It's not just saying, Obey your parents. It's look at the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and see in that what you're supposed to show to the world. But what, when, what about when my parents are crazy? Sometimes they are. And no parent is as good as they ought to be or should be. But in looking past their failures, kids, in looking past their failures, it is possible to still honor them. Just like love, right? Honoring your parents is similar to loving someone. What our culture has done to love is to think that if you love me, you're going to agree with everything I do. Right? If I disagree with you, if I think you're wrong in an area, well, you don't love me. That's not real love. Love is a full embrace. Love is a full acceptance. It's not true love. Love is the ability to care deeply for someone and to identify your good with their own, even in spite of areas that you may disagree with them. You can honor your parents and submit to them in a way in your heart and in your actions that is regardless of how they have acted towards you or how bad you think they've been as a parent. And you can be so sure that they're wrong, but at the same time still honor them and still preach the right kind of sermon about who God is to everyone. Third way, realize that your time is now, kids. Be like Jesus and realize that it's never too early to learn obedience. 
both the Lord and to your parents. Exhort us. We're looking to you. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Timothy was older than a lot of you, those who I'm speaking to you as kids. But just as Jesus, I'm sorry, but Timothy was older, but we, it is never too early to be serious about setting an example. In fact, your example is probably more powerful than mine. Because people expect more from me, right? I've been to Bible college or seminary or whatever. I'm a pastor. So they expect me to give an example of purity and conduct and faith. When it comes from you, 10-year-old, 9, 8, 7-year-old, even a teenager, a young person, and you give an example of purity and faith, it has so much more significance and power. A verse in a passage that has really kind of shaped my thinking about this. Um, if you look at any paintings or images of the disciples, um, how's their facial hair doing? Right? They're th- these massive, glorious beards. You know, they, they look like dwarfs even, you know. And so like Peter, you know, he's kind of got wrinkles and it's like silvering his beard and he's maybe bald on the top and they're all just like these dudes, you know, out fishing, muscular, older guys. But there's a passage that talks about uh, Jesus and Peter needing to pay the temple tax. Do you remember the story? And Jesus and Peter didn't have the money, so Jesus tells Peter, go out and fish, and uh, you'll find a fish, and there will be a coin, and it'll be enough to cover for us. So you have to do one of two things with that text. You have to either say that Jesus, who's the leader of the group, and Peter, who's the leader of the disciples, among the disciples, were the only ones who couldn't afford the temple tax, or all the rest of them didn't have to pay because they were under 21. You ever thought about that? So all the apostles, at least at that moment, I think the much more likely explanation is that every one of them is under 21 years of age. Think about it, kids. What's your three-year plan to be ready when Jesus says, I've handed this over to you? By 18, 19, or 20, 21, 22, whatever age that the rest of the apostles were, when Jesus ascends to the heavens and entrusts the church to them, are you doing what's necessary today to be ready? Because it might be expected of you. And it would be transformative to our city for the young people in this church to realize that God may be expecting so much more of you than our culture expects. It was once told me at seminary, God never did anything great through anyone under 35. And I completely reject that for texts like that. If you look at Spurgeon and Edwards, both of them began their preaching journeys as teenagers. Expect more of yourself, kids. And don't buy into the message that says, well, you can just be a kid, right? It's just childhood. It's eternity. And it hangs in the balance. And your friends and your parents and your siblings hang in the balance. Lastly, exhort your parents by helping them with the weight of the curse. We've spent 
the last two weeks talking about mom and dad and how husbands can exhort wives and wives can exhort husbands, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But just as Jesus helps us in our weakness and helps us by bearing the burdens of the curse, and he empathizes with us all, be like Jesus towards your parents, your brothers and your sisters in Christ to bear the load. All right. Now to siblings, those of you who have um, brothers and sisters, and even if you don't have brothers and sisters, if you have friends here in this room who are for you like a sibling, or if you're a believer and you have brothers and sisters in the family of faith, first, exhort yourself to have the right kind of love. We've already talked about this a little bit. Our love for our friends is often based on what we can get out of them. It's very self-serving. And it's not bad to want to spend time with your friends. Or if you're blessed like I was to have a lot of brothers and sisters who were, most of the time, a lot of fun to spend time with. Okay? But if all your relationship with your brothers or sisters or friends here is founded on you being able to have a fun time with them, all that does is land you both in jail one day or doing something stupid together or wearing matching sweaters or going on long road trips over the years or painting your faces one day and going to your favorite sports event. That's all that results in. Riding a double bike together, right? That's all most of the world's definition of friendship results in. And when you stand before God, and give an answer for your life and your relationships with your brothers and sisters. The questions will revolve around this idea. How did you help them and exhort them to be like Jesus? So analyze your own motivations in your heart. That's the first way you can be a good brother or sister. Whether in a biological family, a nuclear family, or in the broader family of faith. Second, exhort your family by modeling your life and actions after the reality of the family of God. We've mentioned this before, but realize that you get to portray to the onlooking world, to your parents and to your siblings, the reality of the family of God. Do you believe in God? The one true God? Do you believe that there is a true Christian family? that there are brothers and sisters in the faith and that this is really meaningful and it's going to go throughout eternity and we'll be in that type of relationship forever, then show the world you believe that by how you treat your brother or sister. How can you say that you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Third, exhort your siblings by believing that you have them and not someone else as your siblings. It's not an accident that you have the brother that you have or sister you have, or that you're in the community that you're in with the brothers and sisters in faith that you have. It's by design. And again, you may look at me and say, have you met my brother? Have you met my sister? I don't think this was really meant to, me, to be from eternity past, right? It's not working out so well. But you have, and it's by design. Take advantage of the time you... This is an aside, okay? I'm trying to wrap up here. But take advantage of the time you have now 
while you're both living in the same home, especially for you kids who are living at home with your parents and you have brothers or sisters, take advantage of the time you have now while you're both living in the same home to exhort your brother and sister in the Lord. It gets much harder as you move off, grow up, and start your own lives. Trust me. Fourth, exhort your brothers and sisters by understanding that you have been given to each other in the same family to help each other know God. That's the main reason that you've been born into the family you've been born in. That in some way, and maybe God will answer the question of how, particularly when we finally are all together, but you have been given into the family that you've been given to specifically suited to help your brothers or sisters endure in the faith. So figure it out. Try to take advantage of the talents and the inclinations that you have and see your brother or sister as your number one priority in helping them endure, at least while you're living at home. This is all of God's grace. But if I were to ask you the question, How does God's grace help me endure? What has God done in my life to help me endure? He would, if you have brothers and sisters, point to your brothers and sisters. And you should feel that towards them. And you may think he or she is crazy. And you may think it's crazy for God to put you in their lives to help them endure. But he is all wise and we dare not question him. Just be sure that you don't fail in what you're supposed to do for them. Your brother or sister may be crazy, and they may not care about God, they may not care about you, they may not care about your parents, but just be sure that you are doing what you're responsible to do towards them. Exhort one another, and that means your brothers and sisters. And it doesn't have to be anything really fancy. I want to tell you a story, and we'll be done. I must have been uh, 10 years old, 11 years old, and I don't remember everything that led up to this moment. But for some reason, my older brother, Benjamin, so he would have been uh, 12 or 13 or 14, somewhere around there. He just had a sense that we needed to pray. And so we were sharing the same room at the time, and we would start praying at the, at the end of the day before we would go to sleep. And one of the most important memories of my childhood, it'll stick with me forever, we were both praying, we were facing each other, our beds were backed up against each other like this, and we were looking at each other and bowing our heads and praying across the space in between us, and I, I was really tired, and I started to fall asleep. And he reached over and nudged me and said, let's keep praying. It's one of the most important memories of my childhood. How significant would it be if the young people among us, and I'm talking directly at you, if just in something as simple as praying became a priority in your lives, where what causes you to stay up late at night isn't playing Fortnite or playing games of any kind or the tons of other fun stuff that's not necessarily bad that we like to do, texting on whatever app you have going on, but saying to your brother and sister, let's keep praying. It would be evidence and it would signify a tsunami of the grace of God if the young people in our midst would do that. And parents, it's your job to exhort them and be an example for them in that.
Young people, take advantage of the freedom that you have. And you may think you don't have a lot of freedom. Trust me, you have a lot of freedom and free time. And if you begin to prioritize the spiritual things in your life, reading your Bible and praying, it may not seem fancy and you may say, well, I want God to use me in a bigger, more exciting way. I'm going on a mission trip. I want to go and do this or that or whatever. Okay, that's great. But for now, what would really signify God moving powerfully in our midst is if you just prioritize simple things like praying and reading scripture together. So let's commit ourselves to this. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've had. And I pray that as we... um, as we come to a close of our service, that we would take the words that you have spoken in your word and how I've tried to explain them and give the sense of them and that you would actually change your lives. And I pray that if there's something I've said in explaining the father's relationship to the son and the invitation to us to be his children, I ask that you would work in the hearts of the people in this room and that today may be the day of salvation. As we sing this song, that they would seek someone out, seek me out, and we could pray for them to receive Christ as Savior. And I pray for all of us, parents, children, those who have spiritual children, spiritual parents, whatever, that we would embrace this teaching. And pray these things in Jesus' name, our older brother. Amen.